HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Shameless Chef listeners. I'm Dylan Hoyer, the producer of The Shameless Chef. I am, like you, very sad that this series has come to an end, but Heritage Radio Network has 40 weekly shows, all of them about food, so I know you'll be able to find another podcast you love, and I want to help you with that. So I'll be dropping different episodes from across HRN's network of shows in the Shameless Chef feed each week for you to check out. This week, I want to share HRN's flagship show with you. It's called Meat and Three. Modeled after the Southern Meat and Three Sides concept, each episode has one deep dive and three shorts. Each week, we share bites of food news and explore engaging personal stories. I'm going to share our most recent episode with you, which was all about insects. Cooking them, eating them, why you might have not had any that you like, yet. We also cover the return of cicadas and look at what radioactive isotopes in our honey can tell us about the ecosystem at large. This episode has a nice mix of wacky home cooking content and informative reporting that I think you'll enjoy. I also think Michael Davenport would support giving insects some culinary consideration. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. Here's the show. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at GardenCult.com. If you live on the east coast of the U.S., you probably heard the buzz about cicadas. They're pretty loud, but they make some cool noises, which got me thinking. Those buzzin' beats were courtesy of Armin Spingen, HRN intern and audio engineer by day, and DJ Armin Hammer by night. 
We might think of insects as pests, annoying little creatures that enter our homes uninvited. They buzz incessantly and bite us without cause. But insects make the world go round. They can be found in nearly every environment, and it's estimated that over 90% of animal life forms on Earth are insects. The balance of the natural world depends on bugs. Bees pollinate, ladybugs eat pests, and many birds, amphibians, and reptiles rely on insects for food. They're also harvested and eaten by people sometimes. They're a rich source of protein, vitamins, and minerals. And in fact, it's difficult to find an insect that is not eaten in one form or another by people. So this week, we're putting insects front and center. Our stories will unpack the mysterious patterns of cicadas in the U.S., explain the presence of radioactive isotopes in bees, introduce an edible insect ambassador, and explore cooking up bugs at home. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. For our first story, Sasha Cohen plays detective. She speaks to a cicada expert to learn more about the 17-year cicada emergence that's been happening this spring and why it might sound familiar. If you've been keeping up with the news recently, or depending on where you live, stepped outside, you're probably well aware that a special cicada season is upon us. After a 17-year hibernation period, trillions of these insects have emerged from the ground and are taking over large swaths of the country. Nature is doing its thing, and the media, of course, is doing its thing. After 17 years underground, creatures are stirring. Across the country, billions, trillions of cicadas are making their appearance after spending the last 17 years underground. The bugs are coming. Billions of bugs. But I have to be honest, when I first saw the coverage this year, I was like, what is going on? Because I remember the last time the 17-year cicadas came out, and it wasn't 17 years ago. I was in high school in my hometown of Nyack, New York, about 20 miles north of New York City, and it was 2013. How could I forget? The, the sound that comes to mind is certainly the, the crunch under your feet as you're walking yeah. with like the, the, the cicada carcasses. That was my friend Yoni you just heard. I asked him and a bunch of my friends to tell me what they remembered about the cicadas. I remember uh, the cicadas were louder than ever, and there were layers of cicadas on the ground, dead little cicada shells. I remember Jackson Munn's neighbor made cicada soup. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, cicada soup. Yeah, Yeah. you remember that. Did you have any cicada soup? I did not. you have a vivid memory of these? I just know this happened, and I remember the sounds. It was a big deal because it happened like almost every 20 years. These are friends I went to high school with, and I wanted to know if they remembered the cicadas the way I did, or if they even remembered them at all. Because after seeing all the news coverage about this once-in-a-17-year event, I started feeling really crazy, like there'd been some collective memory loss for this moment in time that felt so vivid to me. And not because I was ever, like, super into bugs, but because I had just turned 15 years old. 
It was the beginning of a really exciting summer, a big coming-of-age moment for me and my friends, and the cicadas were so intense. The buzzing sound they made, the crunch under your feet. So from talking to my friends, my memory of this once-in-a-17-year event was thankfully confirmed by people who also lived through it about eight years ago. Plus, a cursory Google search of the keywords Cicada 2013 revealed an abundance of articles published that year with headlines like How to Survive the 2013 Cicada Apocalypse and 17 Years to Hatch an Invasion. Radiolab even made a cicada tracker that mapped them up and down the eastern seaboard. So I knew I was right, but now I had to figure out what was going on. How were the so-called 17-year cicadas back after only eight years? No, no, Sasha, it's a little bit confusing. Basically, there are 15 broods of periodical cicadas in the eastern half of the United States. That was Michael Ropp you just heard, a professor of entomology, that's the study of insects, at the University of Maryland. I called him up last week in the hopes that he could help clear up my confusion. There are 12 broods of 17-year cicadas. There are three broods of 13-year cicadas. And if it was 2013, what year is this? So this would have been... Seven, eight years ago, that was brood two. The answer, as you just heard, is a bit less conspiratorial than I made it out to be. But there you have it. There are several kinds of periodical cicadas, some that come out every 13 years and others that come out every 17 years. And there are also several species, or what they call broods, of both the 17-year and 13-year cicadas. The broods are not all on the same schedule or in the same place. And broods are geographically distinct uh, emergences of cicadas. Almost every year in some part of the country, there's a brood of cicadas up and out. So I think maybe your point of confusion is that, you know, you're saying WTF, how come they're up, you know, hasn't been 17 years. The cicadas coming out this year are brood 10. And Rob suggested that the reason the media coverage is so intense is simply because this brood hits a bunch of major metropolitan areas. This is the most widely distributed of the 17-year broods. This one's going to be in 15 states, right? Okay. Brood 2 is only going to be in a handful. So brood 10 basically ranges all the way from um, Georgia up to Long Island. It's doubtful they're going to be in other parts of New York. We're really concerned. And then um, it ranges west to the Mississippi, Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana. So this is the most widely distributed. And the other piece of it, of course, is you're hitting all your major metro areas. So you're talking about the collision of billions or trillions of of rather large insects with tens of millions of human beings. Cicada specialists are concerned that they may not appear in Long Island this year due to overdevelopment. The construction of roads and buildings ultimately trap the bugs underground, and that prevents them from serving an important role in the ecosystem. In Maryland, where Professor Ropp is based, cicada season was in full peak for the past couple weeks. So for now, he's enjoying the cicada season while it lasts. If I really want to experience the cicada, I just eat them like you would eat, you know, a raw oyster, a raw clam. I just pick one off the tree and and down it. So, yeah. Have you done that this year? Oh, yeah. Several times. Yeah. To learn more about the Brood X cicada emergence happening this year, you can find Professor Rob's undergraduate lab, The Cicada Squad, on Instagram and Twitter and in our show notes. In our next story, Maya bernstein Shallot speaks with Paul Volante about his study on cesium-137 in honey. Cesium-137 is a radioactive isotope 
It was first released into the environment from nuclear weapons tests over 60 years ago. Honey that contains this isotope is still safe for human consumption, but the contents of these samples can tell us a lot about the health of ecosystems around the world. The year is 2021. Honey is sweet and also radioactive. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Meet Paul. My name is Paul Vellante. I use he, him pronouns, and I am currently a lab technician for the William & Mary Geology Department. Radioactive isotopes are any of several species of an element with different masses. They have unstable nuclei, causing them to emit radiation. What makes these isotopes radioactive is the fact that they're unstable and that over time they will decay into a different radioactive isotope. In the late 50s and early 60s, or yeah, the the late 50s and throughout the 60s, there was a wide variety of atomic detonations being carried out by the U.S., the USSR, England, France, China, and other countries as well. Over 500 nuclear weapons tests released more ionizing radiation into the atmosphere than any other time in human history. More than 60 years after these tests, the radioactive isotopes are still around. Some of these radioactive isotopes were ejected into the stratosphere, where then they can be circulated globally by the jet stream. And it takes about, on average, a year for those for those particles that made it to the stratosphere to settle out and then enter the troposphere. And from there, they can be rained out by clouds or precipitation and then deposited onto Earth's surface. That's the main mechanism through which they're deposited. In 1963, the United States, the USSR, and the UK signed a nuclear weapons test ban treaty preventing nuclear testing underwater, in space, and in the atmosphere. But once cesium-137 made it into the ecosystem, it continued cycling through. Why? Unfortunately, plants mistake it for a nutrient that they really need. Potassium is a necessary nutrient for plants to grow. Helping plants move water, nutrients, and carbs around plant tissue. The thing about cesium and potassium is that they're both group 1 atoms, and they both have similar atomic radiuses. And they're both plus one cations. So they're pretty similar on an atomic standpoint. And so what this means is that in soils, when plants are looking for potassium, in certain environments where the soils are depleted in potassium, plants there are more likely to absorb cesium. Honey from places in the southeast U.S. where there are lower concentrations of potassium in the soil contains more cesium-137. And once it entered plants, it had officially made it to the VIP section. And then that results in when bees are going to collect nectar from the plants, that nectar has that cesium in it as well. The bees bring that nectar home. And so that gets brought back to the hives and then gets concentrated down from the bees fanning the nectar. And the resultant honey has more cesium. Thousands of miles away from the original testing sites, cesium-137 has made it into our honey. It's more concentrated in places with more rainfall, which is why there's more in the eastern United States. But Paul stressed that this honey is okay to eat. The highest level of cesium-137 we found in a honey sample 
was several orders of magnitude below the FDA's threshold for safety. So there's absolutely no fear for humans. But what about the bees? Some studies have found that low levels of cesium-137 pollution can be lethal to pollinating insects and damage the surrounding ecosystem. Without honeybees, 70% of plants would be unable to reproduce or provide food. Humans would lose about a third of the global food supply. But there's no scientific consensus on cesium-137 contamination. The thresholds at which effects are felt by certain insects or pollinators is still being debated and figured out. Whether or not you're a honey fan, the contents of honey can reveal hotspots of contamination decades after the original contaminants were produced. Just how harmful these contaminants are has yet to be discovered. To learn more, you can find the link to the full study in our show notes. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. Welcome back to Meat and 3. So next up, it's time to talk about bugs as food. Hannah Fulmer speaks to two edible insect enthusiasts trying to bring this source of protein into the mainstream. There's lots of reasons to eat insects. They're full of protein, have a low impact on the environment, and they're tasty. But despite all these positives, for a lot of people it's hard to stop seeing bugs as scary or gross. Breaking through that mental block is a major hurdle for people like Joseph Yoon, the executive director of Brooklyn Bugs and a self-professed edible insect ambassador. What we're trying to do is redefine and reimagine edible insects. An important part of that is getting people more exposure to eating insects. People may go to like a museum gift shop and see a busted old box of dry, stale crickets that have been sitting there for God knows how long. They'll try it and be like, it tastes like sawdust and it's kind of disgusting. Those museum bugs are the equivalent of biting into a raw clove of garlic or a boiled piece of chicken. 80% of the world's cultures already eat insects. And insects are part of the food traditions of indigenous tribes throughout the Americas. Still, most Americans don't have the cultural know-how to prepare insects well. In foreign countries, people actually know what they're eating and what they prefer. 
That's David George Gordon, another bug chef and insect advocate. It's not because of the doomsday prophecy or because they're desperate to get protein. It's because they like these things. That's why more exposure is so important. People need to learn how they like to eat insects. There's all different ways of approaching this, but think of them as just part of the palette of all the different flavors and textures and styles of foods. And so what does it taste like in its most natural state? What does it taste like when it's boiled, fried, sauteed, or roasted? And then once I start getting an idea of the flavor, then it's time for manipulation and for incorporation. Okay, so crickets have like this sort of nutty umami flavor. How can it act if I were to utilize it into a cheese sauce in my mac and cheese and also to provide a crunchy layer on top as well? Despite all their positives, insects are still treated very differently from other foods. David and Joseph think rebranding is just one potential strategy to help people think of insects like any other pantry item. We don't even eat cow. We eat beef, burgers, steak. So we even need to come up with new words for eating insects. Wax worms. Anything named worm is not going to be acceptable to most people in our society. But their scientific name is Galleria. I like that a lot. I'd much rather use that. Because really the issue is normalizing, that's the fancy word for this, normalizing your food preference so that it's not a trip to the moon to try to eat a cricket or a grasshopper. With so much attention surrounding Cicada Brood X, David and Joseph think it's the perfect time to try edible insects. In the springtime, people usually think about ramps, asparagus, and fiddleheads. Maybe it's time to add cicadas to that list. For our grand finale this week, our head of audio production, Matt Patterson, takes a stab at cooking and eating insects for the first time in his home kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, so the, the real first step in this recipe is like spend a week psyching yourself up to actually open the cookbook because look, look at the back page of this thing. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. I hope this isn't tonight's dinner. (laughs) Today we'll be cooking the newest dish in my repertoire, Orthopteran Orzo from the Eat Above Cookbook. Before we get started, you'll want to gather some supplies. You'll need a pot and skillet, three cups of vegetable broth, one cup of orzo, two carrots, a half a red bell pepper and a half a green bell pepper, one tablespoon of butter for sautéing, one garlic clove, a half a yellow onion, two tablespoons of chopped fresh parsley, and one cup of thawed two- or three-week-old cricket nymphs. What's that you say? No crickets in your freezer? Many pet stores carry live crickets as food for hedgehogs, frogs, friends, family, etc., You can also order directly from livestock suppliers. I got mine shipped from Fluker Farms in Louisiana. Just be careful when you open them. Well, so we just need to cleanly get them into this without (laughs) spilling them everywhere. Um, I believe in you. Oh, there you go. Oh, 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 o
At three weeks old, crickets lack wings and have skinny limbs and short antenna. That means you get the pleasure of eating them whole. This recipe serves six, so you'll definitely want to invite your parents over. Hello. My parents ended up being upsettingly enthusiastic about this entire endeavor. We are! So, first things first, you might as well get started heating that veggie broth while you prep the other ingredients. You'll need to finely dice the peppers until you have one quarter cup of each. Then, grate your carrots. You'll need a half a cup. Put those together and set them aside. Then, chop your onion until you have half a cup and mince your garlic clove. Rinse your thawed crickets and add those three together. Oh, and once your broth is boiling, stir in the orzo. It should take about 10 minutes to get tender. Ready? Yeah, do it. With about five minutes to go on the orzo, melt the butter in your skillet and add the garlic, onion, and crickets. Whoa, that actually smells good. Keep the heat to medium. See? Crickets are thin and they can burn easily. <laughs> you sound surprised. Even though Michael Ropp said he's eaten cicadas off the trees raw, David George Gordon says that, like any animal, you should cook your insects to ensure that they aren't carrying parasites that could hurt you. I'm going to follow David on that one. What are you expecting is the best part about eating crickets? <laughs> the crunch. I think it's, it's going to be crunchy. Uh, and, and, and a tickle of the, of the antenna. So back at the stovetop, saute until the onions are translucent and the garlic and crickets have browned. Okay, it's time. I'm gonna drain this. Then combine the cricket mixture, including any liquid, with the orzo and vegetables. Top with the parsley, and the dish is done. I'm telling you, it looks very pretty. They do give a little earthiness to this dish. Because you didn't put anything else in that would have that kind of oh, we didn't. earthy flavor. Maybe they weren't washed off enough. <laughs> well, maybe, but there definitely is an earthiness to it. There's like there is a nuttiness. I just yeah, had another it, one yeah, just straight up, and there is a nuttiness nutty. to them. It's yeah. They're not totally flavorless. Also, I think they're a little salty, which is a selling point for me. Dad is the only one who actually who finished. Who cleaned his plate. Wow, that's Killed awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. You win. Yeah. Mom, you came in second, and Kate came in last, uh, and I did you, not Yes, you're skipping over yourself better. there. <laughs> that's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Armin Spingen, Sasha Cohen, Maya Bernstein-Shallot, Hannah Fulmer, and Matt Patterson. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And remember, you can always email us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. Whether you have a story idea or just would like to say hello, we are always listening. That's ideas at meetin3.nyc, all spelled out. <laughs>